Coming up on today's show, more on the residential school situation with Cora Voyager, a member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, and the continued influence of China in Canada's affairs. And Eric Duncan joins us to talk about the Conservatives calling on the Liberals to finally end the gay man donation of blood ban. Cora Voyager is a member of the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, a residential school survivor and a professor at the University of Calgary. And she joins us now to talk about, uh, you know, the latest developments on this file and where we go from here. Um, Cora, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Now, this news that we heard late last week, obviously uh, not surprising to many people, people like yourself especially. Um, You worked on the Truth and Reconciliation Report. Stories like this were actually very commonplace from people you spoke to in putting together that report, right? Uh, Well, actually, I was uh, on the committee that uh, selected the first um, uh, group of commissioners. So that was the the committee and the the vetting committee. So I didn't actually write um, write the report. Um, these stories, like as we've gone along over the com- uh, past few days, we've we've come to learn that for people in these communities, this is not a surprise. This was fully uh, expected. No, this this isn't a surprise. I mean, with um, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission, there was actually one volume that dealt with uh, missing uh, missing children um, and uh, burials. Um, you know, unreported yeah. burials. So, man, there was quite a lot of information on that, and that was from the uh, the people who testified and were part of the Truth and Reconciliation um, Commission hearings that went across Canada. Yeah, and, and they told told their stories. Um, it seems to me uh, that this obviously has changed the discussion around residential schools in our country and the history of them and the impact they've had. Do you sense the same thing happening? Um, this discovery seems to have elevated it to a different level. Are you seeing a similar reaction? Well, I've had um, you know a lot of uh, people contact me about um, uh, about the um, you know unearthing, for lack of a better term, uh, at Kamloops. So, um, you know, it's, you know, it's such a sad situation and such a sad story that, you know, 215 um, bodies were were found, or the remains, and, you know, some as young as three years old. So, you know, with... um, you know, advances in technology were able to to find um, you know this information and again this, these are preliminary findings but uh, you know this is something that was known uh, within the indigenous community because um, you know there were so many families uh, and communities that had uh, children that went to residential school and did not come back and the latest number that we have found um, is about 4,200. Wow. Yeah, and so it's, you know... That's it, staggering. It, it, it's just, it's it's absolutely staggering. Um, this changes it and it, and, and it, and it gives it added momentum. Where do we need to go from here, Cora? How do we capitalize on this momentum and this attention? What has to happen starting now? Well, I think what we need to do is, you know, to, um, you know, to start believing the stories that uh, that people have told. Um, the chair of the TRC, uh, Murray Sinclair, 
uh, spoke yesterday and said people were contacting him and saying, you know, people are finally starting to believe the mm-hmm. stories that we were telling. Um, some of the people at the hearings said, you know, I, I saw somebody killed. I was forced to, to dig a grave. I was um, you know, made to watch and, and these types of things and how it was so traumatic for them. And, you know, it didn't really seem that it was gaining much traction. And the reports came out six years ago, and, and here we are six years later, um, you know, with this revelation of, of um, this mass grave. And I think that as Canadians, we don't think that kind of thing happens in our right. country. No, I agree 100%. I think it's startling. You know, it's, it's shocking that this did happen in our country, and not that long ago either, Cora. Uh, yeah, not that and, long ago at all. Yeah, not that long ago. And in the, the fourth volume of the TRC reports, the reporting goes up to, uh, uh, to 1996, which is not that long ago, and that was when the last residential school in Canada um, closed. So we had over a hundred years of residential schools in in our country, and um, at their height, there was 139 of them. So those are across the country, and I think that what we need to do in Alberta, and I guess across the country, is you know start um, asking questions and start doing research and and um, you know using the the technology to see where. Um, you know, you know if and where these other mass graves are, because I don't believe that this is an isolated no, yeah. um, occurrence. No, by all accounts, we hear there's many more. Um, do you think, I'm hopeful, that this will raise awareness about the reality of being an Indigenous Canadian in 2021 and provide us all with some greater understanding, some context about maybe this is part of the reason why we still face so many issues in this country and how this system that really existed, you know, up until 25, 30 years ago, helped to create a lot of the the problems that we have today? Well, I think that with the uh, Indigenous population and, you know, how Canada was formed, there was this assumption and this belief of settler supremacy, So settler supremacy over Indigenous people, and I see this idea as, you know, being the the background to, you know, murdered and missing Indigenous women, you know, the 60s scoop, um, you know, and other uh, situations, the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in, in the justice system. So these are all, in my mind, you know, the foundation was laid by, you know, the racism that uh, was prevalent in Canada. And, you know, we like to think of ourselves as being, you know, colorblind and, mm. and you know, not... Um, you know, being as racist as, you know, we see in, in other countries. But, you know, we have our own, you know, uh, skeletons in the closet and and dark history. And, you know, and this is something that is continuing today. I mean, if we look at what happened uh, in Charlottesville a couple of years ago, there were, you know, young white men screaming around in, in uh, a pickup truck with Ontario plates. At Charlottesville. So this is something that's very alive in, 
in our country, and it's something that you know I think that we need to address. We need to we need to address. You're absolutely right. You know, you make an interesting point. We we, we talk about the the country that we are, and multiculturalism is a tenant in what we are as a country. That's what we're told. That's what we profess. That's what we proclaim. We had generations of Canadians who their culture was under attack. The whole point of this system was to erase that culture from Canada. Erase the culture, but also to erase the people, because with the assimilation uh, policy, the whole idea was to you know get the Indigenous numbers down and, and the game dealing with the issue of settler supremacy it was just an idea you know you know what do we do with the indians until you know because of the way they are that they just simply die out i mean that was the idea behind this and it was seen as more of a stopgap um policy because you know we just weren't going to survive um so you know, with the assimilation policy, there was a number of ways that the um, you know indigenous or the Indian First Nation person could lose their Indian status, and we were seen to um, you know our objective uh, or the objective for us mm-hmm. was to just simply have us you know meld into mainstream right. society, which is you know a strange policy given the multicultural. Yeah lens that we like to see ourselves through. It's completely opposite to what we keep telling everybody and telling the world we're all about. Well, absolutely. And I guess the thing that I find ironic in all of this is that, you know, as First Nation people, we're loved around the world, except in our own country. Right, yeah. You know, where we're seen as being being a problem. And, you know, the idea of the Indian problem is something that has, you know, it's, it's pretty dyed in the wool in our country. Yeah, and and hopefully we're at a point now where this this changes that, and and, and we're forced to reckon with that and uh, make some serious progress. Uh, Cora, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate the chat. Okay, great, thank you. That is Cora Voyageur, who is a professor at the University of Calgary. Yet more evidence this week. That China is up to all kinds of treachery in our country. Uh, We are a target of influence. Our citizens, our politicians, our institutions, our media, you name it. The Chinese government is trying to influence and manipulate. And even though it's widely accepted that China is carrying out these actions in Canada, many of these campaigns go virtually unnoticed, definitely without any response. Um, Now, this week, a special House of Commons Committee on Canada-China Relations received a report from Alliance Canada-Hong Kong, which is a group representing various pro-democracy groups. And that report um, details a lot of things that we've already known about and already talked about. Uh, Joining us now to discuss the report and, and China's influence in our country in general is... Colin Robertson. Uh, Colin is the Vice President and uh, Fellow at Canadian Global Affairs Institute and a former Canadian diplomat who served in China. Uh, Colin, thanks for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Good to be with you, Shay. Now, this report that we're talking about from Alliance Canada Hong Kong, it, it details a lot of things, things that we've known about, right? Things we've talked about in this country before. Yeah, for over a decade. You may remember our then uh, CSIS uh, Director Dick Fadden spoke about this, oh, I say it over a decade ago, and since then the uh, House of Commons 
Committee on Security and Intelligence has reported on activities by China, Russia, and other countries. Canada is particularly susceptible to this kind of intrigue because we are a, an immigrant-receiving country. That's a good thing. I mean, that's what builds Canada. We take about 1% of our population each year in immigrants and a few refugees. And as I say, it, it builds a stronger Canada. It means that our, in our big cities like Toronto, half the population was born outside the country. But it, it does, uh, of course, the, the, the ties to the homeland allow... Uh, embassies like China, they have a pretty active un- what they call United Front activity, uh, which they run out of Vancouver uh, for across the country to uh, to try and exert influence on those who have a link to the homeland. And of right. course, it's easier in Canada uh, because we've got many stations in many different languages, and so the, there is, and we are a free and open society. I mean, that's a great strength of Canada, but it also is a vulnerability. Yeah, it means they can easily tap into those those sources, and social media as well, we should mention. They're very active. So, in, social, media social media in a very big way. We chat and things like that, and of course, in many ways, China is more advanced in use of social media, digital, uh, online payment through various things than we are, and so those who come from China are familiar with this and adapted, and and that also brings some innovation to Canada, but it also allows the Chinese authorities to use various ways to reach out to what they see as as those from the homeland. Right. Uh, Another thing that we've talked about, and uh, the Alberta government recently took some steps uh, to shut down any collaboration with anyone or any group linked to the Chinese Communist Party and Alberta universities, the four major universities in Alberta. Uh, that was cited in this report as being another way that they exert their influence is in Canadian uh, educational systems. Um, yeah, through the Confucius Institutes right. and various exchanges and things. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that uh, shutting the door is the way to go. I think we're always better to engage because that's how we learn as well. These activities will still take place and it is important for us to uh, China is soon will be the, the 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 big economic power they'll pass the US simply based on population they're 1.4 billion as opposed to the US 330,000 and 330 million but they're growing and and uh, I, I think it's in in Canadian interest particularly because we have a large Chinese diaspora in Canada to have relationships with China but go in with eyes wide open and when we find uh, intrigue and treachery, as I think you put it at the out, then, then we call it out and we send those responsible home. I, I, I'm not sure that we're doing that the way we should. I think that the, the, the Chinese will take full advantage until we say no, and I think that's something that we probably have not done as much as we should have uh, when we find things out. And of course, the Chinese are pretty tough in their own country about throwing out journalists and uh, practicing, as we call it, arbitrary detention, hostage-taking. Um, are, are, do we respond as we should? Probably not. In this report that was presented uh, to the Commons Committee this week, um, the ACHK does talk about some of the ways that we need to remedy this. We talk so much about it happening, we don't talk a lot about how the pushback should happen. Um, They make a number of demands on the Canadian government, saying the government needs to do a better job, uh, including um, the so-called Magnitsky legislation. Where they would punish yeah, the Chinese Magnitsky officials. legislation. Basically, if you're, we brought this in. Magnitsky named after the Russian mm-hmm. uh, dissident who was killed by Putin. Uh, that says that if you if you abuse human rights, we are going to take sanctions against 
the individuals rather than the country, because we've learned with sanctions, and Alberta farmers will appreciate this, we put sanctions on Russia and said, we're not going to sell any more beef. The real sufferers in this were the Alberta farmers, who, uh, because the Russians then just bought from Argentina and Brazil and other countries. So I think going after individuals, as the Magnitsky legislation allows us to do, and we've now applied this against Russians, people in Belarus, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, uh, and other places, uh, that this is what we should be doing, and we're we're sort of moving to do this about human rights abuses in Xinjiang and and what's taking place in, in Hong Kong. But I think we could go further. You identified the Chinese Communist Party as basically, because that is the sole party in China, as driving this. My suggestion is that there are about uh, about 150,000 Chinese students studying in Canada. Uh, We're one of the big, uh, uh, an English-speaking education is highly prized by the elite in China, and that's basically the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Rather than sort of shut the door on engagement, I would say we target the children of senior members of the Chinese Communist Party, because these are the individuals responsible, and say, you can't study in Canada. That would take out probably about 5%, maybe 10% of those who study in Canada, but you can be sure that mothers and grandmothers will be going to husbands and, and grandfathers and saying, what are we doing? If, if The one thing, as they say, that the Chinese prize above all is a, is, a, is a good education, and they see that as coming out of uh, particularly English-speaking countries like the United States, like Canada, like Australia. And I think we should do this in, in concert with uh, the, those, those countries like the United States and Australia, because then it would have much greater impact. Right. If we simply do it on our own, that's not going to be enough. But if we did it with Britain, with the U.S., with Australia, all of whom, uh, particularly Australia, have been experiencing uh, Chinese uh, pressure, as has Canada, uh, on individuals and on our on goods we sell, that I think would have some impact. You mentioned, you know, the U.S. and Australia, and they certainly are dealing with the same sort of pressures that we are, but they seem to be more willing to push back. And, you know, they pass legislation. When we're talking specifically about the way um, the Chinese Communist Party targets business leaders and politicians in our country and exerts influence that way, there are laws against that in the United States and Australia. Why aren't we doing that? That's a very good question. And I think that's something that the parliamentary committee that's looking at China has has recommended that we strengthen our, 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 our legislation, uh, particularly around surveillance of investment by state-owned operations uh, that, that are funded by the Chinese Communist Party, essentially the Chinese state investment Canada, because they operate at an advantage, and we're not always sure that they're they've got our interests at heart. Obviously, they've got their own interests at heart. So I, I think Mr. When Mr. Harper was Prime Minister, he brought in legislation which sort of tightened rules around foreign investment, and I think it's time to look at those. Uh, uh, at, at, those uh, obligations once more. You know, and I think the overall statement of this report and sort of the way they sum it up is um, we need to stop worrying about offending China and we need to stop with that kind of thinking um, and realize that we might upset the Chinese government in some ways, but it's worth it. I mean, do we need to have a complete reset of the way we think about this? Because we don't, that seems to be the overriding principle is, is don't upset the Chinese government. Yeah, I think, Shay, I think that there is a, a, a rethink taking place, certainly amongst the, the Canadian public. The Canadian public now yeah. 
views China with, with uh, I, I think, with fairly clear eyes. I think some in government uh, have yet to come to that realization, but should because uh, governments are supposed to reflect, obviously, public opinion. And, and I, th- I, th- I think that uh, we've got to recognize that from a Chinese Communist Party perspective, they see our turning the other cheek as a form of weakness, right. and we'll simply just keep taking advantage. The Australians, the Americans, and the Brits uh, have, have all come around. And, and I think our government is slowly, we're starting now to participate with other like-minded in, when, in, in criticism of uh, uh, and condemning Chinese actions, uh, human rights abuses in Xinjiang, what they're doing in the South China Sea, what they're doing against in Hong Kong. I think we could also uh, be greater supporters of, of, of the democracy in, in, in that part of the world, and that's Taiwan, which, with whom we don't have mm-hmm. uh, a formal relationship. But it's it's a really it's a vibrant democracy, and I think we could, if we are defending democracy, and this is something the prime minister often talks about, then why aren't we doing more to support Taiwan's, for example, its membership in things like the International Civil Aviation Organization, the World Health Organization, you know, because gosh, we could learn a lot from how they they were the first to sort of realize what was going on in terms of this pandemic, and have had a pretty good record of, of how they managed. Uh, the the pandemic uh, that we we could learn from them so why aren't we doing a bit more yeah and like you say this is not new we've been talking about this for over 10 years no. it's high time to act yeah i think that's right and i again i'm, I'm encouraged when i see the parliamentary committee remember this represents all parties yeah. uh and their first report which was included liberal members was quite critical of of of, of the government action and encouraging the action to do more and so i think that the spotlight is on public opinion has certainly shifted in the West, not just the English-speaking world, but also within Europe, they they pulled back on the investment treaty that they had negotiated with the Chinese, and I think uh, China is certainly going to be on the table for discussion at the upcoming G7 meeting uh, in uh, Corpus Bay and in, in Britain, and at the NATO meeting the next week. And uh, uh, so I, I think that there there we're starting to see more collective action by Western countries, which should include Canada. To, uh, to basically say to the Chinese, as you put it, enough is enough, mm-hmm. and if you if you continue, we're going to take uh, punitive action. Well, we'll see how it goes. It's encouraging that at least something seems to be happening in that direction. Colin, thank you for your time. Okay, thanks, Shay. Appreciate it very much. That is Colin Robertson, who is Vice President and Fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and a former Canadian diplomat who actually uh, served in China. course is Pride Month in this country and yesterday uh, Aaron O'Toole released a video to mark the start of Pride Month and in it he and the Conservative Party once again went after Justin Trudeau calling on him to end the ban on gay men donating blood in Canada. It's a ban that's been in place in various forms going back to 1992, if you can believe it. Eric Duncan is a Conservative MP that really has spearheaded the effort to get rid of this ban in Parliament, and he joins us now to talk about it. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Now, this donation, as we said, it goes back a long way, back to 1992. They've scaled it back and changed it over the years, but um, at, at this point, what are the rules around gay men donating blood in Canada? 
So right now, for any man who has sex with a man, if you've had uh, had that in the last three months, you are disqualified, or um, it's called a deferral period. You cannot donate uh, blood through Canadian Blood Services, and you are right. We've made progress from back when it originally started, and again, where this came from was back in the 1980s when there was a large HIV/AIDS crisis, particularly among gay men in Canada and, and beyond as well. But we've seen science and technology. We've seen rates that have astronomically changed, and the science has gotten so much better now uh, in terms of being able to detect any issues with uh, with donations that come in. So um, we went from a lifetime ban down to a five-year to a one-year, and now we're at three months. But there's no need in today's day and age with the options that are available that we couldn't switch the questionnaire to you know end the stigma that, that gay men face. You know, and, and that's important to talk about, I think, when we talk about are there medical organizations, are there blood, blood product agencies, is there any scientific evidence to have this sort of a ban in place? Is there anything, you know, what are the concerns? Why is it still there? Well, it's a good question as to why it's there. And Justin Trudeau, as we called out uh, repeatedly, not just for Pride Month, but for the last better part of the last year, as Canadian Blood Services and HEMA Quebec have been asking people to step forward and make donations, particularly with the challenge of COVID and being able to get access to, to donors. But to clarify right off the bat, before release for, trans, uh, for transfusion, every single blood donation is tested and must be non-reactive for diseases, you know, to be known to be transmitted mm-hmm. by transfusion. It's a window period of where uh, if somebody is infected, um, the timeline or the time frame, the window is less than a month or so right now because the advancements we've made in science where they can't detect that issue in the blood supply if the infections come in a certain period of time. So what we're saying is is that uh, there is lots of science. The United Kingdom, for an example, has gone and shown. And what we've been saying as well is for the science, we're asking for the questionnaire to be changed. It shouldn't be based on sexual orientation, but rather on sexual behavior. So, for again, are you having unprotected sex with multiple partners? Those are the types of questions, whether you're gay or straight or whatever your situation may be, that is a risk assessment that needs to be asked. It does not need to be based on sexual orientation. So it's important to know that it's not just, uh, you know, the, the change in the science, but I think the solution is there where we can make it more, uh, you know, based on behavior uh, for all of society and all donors. And we we have to point out, we have to mention here that the Liberal government knows more than well uh, about this situation. They campaigned in 2015 and in 2019 again on promising to do away with this ban, did they not? Absolutely, they did. And, and this is the part that, you know, that I think offends a lot of people uh, who are members of the LGBT community that are going out. During an election, they have no promise, uh, no problem promising this to say they're going to end it. And then when they come into government, say, oh, well, it's independent. It's not our, it's not our ability to change this. We have to wait for a, a suggestion from Canadian Blood Services and HEMA Quebec. And We've asked, and I've asked several times, well, why is it okay for you to promise it during an election to try to get somebody's vote, Mm -hmm. but then whenever they go and ask you to go and keep the promise, oh, well, no, no, that's not us. You don't understand the process. There's another way of going about it. So it's It's a slap in the face, and frankly, it's just really cynical. I, I said in the House of Commons this week when I was going on the issue, people wonder why elected officials get a bad name, and the Liberals have an issue with, you know, A, for an announcement. They are the best in the business at showing up for photo ops and pride parades and raising the flag, but then when it actually comes to something meaningful and tangible that they can do, 
They don't do it. And I think there's a difference between talk and action, and this is a perfect example of that. Um, when we talk about, you, you mentioned the uh, the encounter that you had in the House of Commons. You put a very direct question to our federal health minister, basically asking her if she would accept a donation of blood from a gay man. She wouldn't answer the question, would she? Three times we asked her, um, and uh, actually she she laughed uh, the second and third time at it. But I think it speaks to the seriousness of how this policy that is way outdated, where there's a very safe, simple solution that can be implemented immediately just by changing the questionnaire and keeping it safe and keeping our blood supply safe, they it just bewilders me as to why they're allowing this and again those questions in the house and the things we've been saying is it just perpetuates a stigma i went to donate blood for the first time i I was about 16 or 17 years old so that was about 16 17 years ago and i didn't realize until i got in there that i was disqualified from donating simply for for being gay and i for one of the very few times in my life i consider myself very fortunate and blessed in my life and my life experience but for one of the the very first few times in my life, I felt that there was something wrong with me mm-hmm. for being gay. They have the opportunity to correct this, to put some action behind their feel-good words. And, and to your point, I can't figure out for the life of me, we keep asking. It's not like we're you know going against science. We're proposing a safe solution. The Canadian Medical Association's membership is on board to going to this type of screening process, to changing those questionnaires to keep the safety and the questionnaire obviously in place and that part of the questionnaire in place. The All Blood is Equal campaign, every political party's behind this now. It's just the political will that's missing. That's the only thing. So how does that change? I mean, what's, what's your expectation? What's your hope? What's the timeline? When do you think we might see some progress on this? Well, what we proposed, and we had a press conference yesterday, that there is actually regulations that the minister has in her power today. It's through the Food and the Drug Act, uh, and specifically there's a section that deals with blood uh, regulations. It's an annex in the bill. And there's actually a section the minister has the power to, in writing, remove questions that are deemed uh, unnecessary for the protection of Canada's blood supply. And what we're saying is you can invoke that section and tell them to change the questionnaire to, again, remove questions that relate to sexual orientation and change it to sexual behavior. When people hear that, when people understand that all blood is tested, uh, every single donation is tested, when they understand the change in questionnaire that's being proposed here and understanding the science and how far we've come, people just get more and more frustrated, A, if they just realize that it exists now, uh, it is even in place, and number two is just why the government's not making the simple change when we're proving to them that they can make it today. So we're going to keep the pressure on them. More and more people need to hear. They need to contact their MP, regardless of party, to let them know that you're aware of, you know, they're aware of the solution. They want to see the change. And just, we got to keep the pressure on them. That's the way that, unfortunately, the government's been reacting to too many of these issues. It's been when more and more Canadians understand the issue and know the solution and call them out on it, uh, that certainly builds support for getting this change done. Uh, Eric, while I have you, uh, you know, as you said, as an openly gay member of Parliament, I want your reaction to sort of the way things unfolded yesterday with Aaron O'Toole's announcement and the kickoff to Pride Month and everything like that being very closely linked to a handful of Conservative MPs refusing to support an effort to ban conversion therapy. Um, it sort of seemed to be very contradictory to what the leader was trying to do. Just what's your reaction to the way that, that all played out yesterday? 
Well, I'm really proud of Aaron and the video specifically for kicking off Pride Month. It was an absolutely fantastic and I think meaningful video that talks about his personal experience and where he's coming from. On the issue of conversion therapy on Bill C-6, I have not spoke to one person from any party that believes conversion therapy does not need to be banned. What I think they're talking about is the, the, the details being in there in certain parts of it where they're wanting clarification for greater certainty. And frankly, in my opinion, the Liberals are playing a lot of politics. They're there was a, in their news release that they issued the first time they had the bill before they prorogued, they said to clarify, this does not pertain to private conversations and certain, uh, certain aspects. We asked and said, well, just put that section for greater clarity in the bill, and it would, it would uh, alleviate the concerns that people have been hearing from, from uh, parents, certain parents and organizations across the country. They ignored that. They, they declined to do it. When they reintroduced the bill with the news release, they just deleted reference to that line. So I think we go back to talking about playing political games there and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nobody that wants to have conversion therapy in this country, um, but uh, you know they're having valid questions, and I think it's just a, a trust issue, unfortunately, with the government I see. I'm proud to support the bill, but I certainly think there could be reasonable amendments in there that can further clarify and, and send an even stronger message. Eric, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy Pride. Absolutely. You too. That's Eric Duncan, uh, Conservative MP, talking about this blood ban issue. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.